Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build a purpose-driven organization and a purpose-driven life. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can take everything from this conversation and go out and build a purpose-driven life. My name is CK Lin. I've been a biomedical engineering PhD at UCLA. I've been a director for the University of California system. I've been in startup executive. I've been an executive coach. I've been on a quest to build a purpose-driven life. My next guest, he's a wealth management strategy advisor for impact investors. He is in a regenerative macro economist. He works with leaders in economic development groups, think tanks, investors, families of wealth to help them achieve sustainable development goals. Please welcome Gregory Went. Thank you, CK. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for being here. There's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but let me start off with something simple. How was uh, box breathing before we start? Wonderful. I meditate every day and have been a meditation practitioner since I was a teenager. So I love that you've used that as an important practice for everyone to get on the same page. Very powerful. Thank you. So I want to start with something because you put it on your profile. You're really passionate about rare HT. So why don't we start there? Something simple, something light. Tell us about your passion for HTs. Herbal medicine and holistic systems oriented modalities like Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or homeopathy, improving diet for health were all very much common sense for me since I was young, having been involved with communities and worked at vegetarian restaurants when I was young and lived in meditation centers of wisdom traditions, all that stuff was like the context. And then a friend of mine told me he's going to go study tea in Asia for six months, about 11, 12 years ago. And I was like, huh, having done the Japanese tea ceremony and traveled and studied Eastern culture and all of that, I was like, that's cool. Okay. But six months, I'm like studying tea or maybe that the Japanese was like, what, whatever. And then he came back to LA with 60 different types of rare aged teas. And he said, this is Thich Nhat Hanh's favorite tea. And look at this little teapot and try this and let's sit and meditate with tea. And having done meditation and tried other types of plant medicines for vision before, I was familiar enough, but I had no idea that drinking tea in itself has a psychobiological effect with the way that the plant compounds actually interact with the body when used as a meditation tool. So that's when I started really studying and getting into tea. And then now I have a tea collection. I've got a, a tea in Taiwan. I buy tea across Asia from people that I know. And I have about a bunch of different teapots. And then I do tea ceremony for people and I drink it as a day-to-day -day experience as well. But it's all connected to, in most of the, like the wisdom traditions in China in particular, the Taoist and the Zen or what they call Chan, tea is an integral part of a lot of those practices and they're inseparable in some ways. When the Japanese Buddhists were wanting to study Zen in China, they were invited and introduced to the way of tea as a, an integral 
part of the Zen way. And they use the Chinese masters says Zen and tea are of one flavor because the presence that tea brings about is the same kind of presence that the practice of Zen once and the word Zen is a derivative of the Chinese word Chun, which is a derivative of the, Ch the, the Sanskrit word Dian, which means meditation. So in effect, the entire set of what you might even call a faith called Zen is really nothing more than generic meditation in its purest form. And there's no icon, there's no canon, there's no and they say in the tea tradition, the scriptures are not written anywhere except on the veins of the leaf. So this is the perspective that I've actually been a student of since I was very young, prior to getting into economics and, and, and finance. So it's the meta perspective that you might say, which is the vantage point that comes from these wisdom traditions, whether you be Zen or Hindu Tantra or yoga or alchemy, they're all the same kind of expanded vision and then bringing that into the problems of the day with policy and economic and financial problems in the world and societal issues, of course, then it gives a different vantage point from which to navigate. And it's been very helpful to me, especially when I get all wound up with the kinds of issues. I was going to say, I was going to say the word idiocy. The part of me that is frustrated is also in that category as well. So who am I to say that they're idiots when my three fingers are pointing back at me? But you get my point. One of the things I'm really curious about actually is tea. Uh, part of it is because I'm Chinese. This is part of my heritage. And part of it also is there's that spiritual aspect of it. What would you say for someone who is a total novice? What's a way to go about it? Because in my mind, right, the way I learn anything, I'm a meta learner. I love just the, the art of learning. That's just part of who I am. I'm passionate about it. So the way I would go about it would be, let me actually get to the sensible aspect of it. The smells of it, the taste of it, the, the different flavored notes and all these things. Then I'll get into the ceremonial part. Then I'll try to go deeper into the deeper meaning of what potentially it does for me on the physiological level. That's how I would go about it. Knowing what you know now, what would you say to someone like me who is intrigued, who is interested and who want to get into it? Thank you. Good questions. I'm just reflecting on my first time being at a Japanese tea ceremony in Kyoto in 1987, you know, where the very meticulous curated design of how the bowl is placed and the movements and all of that very mindful step-by-step -step process of presence. And until my friend 23 years later, invited me to come and drink tea with him, my predominant assumption around tea as a spiritual practice was surrounding the action and the, the resultant quietude that comes about from the presence. Yet also being a person who studies psychoactive neurobiological processes in somatic medicine, in diet, influencing psyche, your gut biome, when it's all screwed up, you get more amygdala driven is one of the oversimplifications. But then the process of the body 
and the mind and the emotions being tied together as one system is implicitly obvious when we're talking about integral medicine, but it integral approaches. So with T, I was unaware until that one time drinking tea in silence, a very high quality, clean tea that has organic or wild crafted that is obviously not processed with any chemicals. And then to get to that point where the plant that is well cultivated and, and well processed, the actual drinking of the tea produces a psychobiological effect beyond what we would know as tea drinkers or coffee drinkers because of the simple practice of sitting in silence and using tea to support the process of meditation not unlike ayahuasca which i've only tried once incidentally but ayahuasca creates a very dramatic as psychedelic effect not unlike you know some version of lsd or magic mushrooms or something tea is a much more nuanced so I call tea a coherence psychedelic rather than trips you out. It trips you into presence, mm. but calms your mind and brings a sense of presence that is a direct result of the plant's chemistry on your nervous system. But that was something I was completely unaware of because 90% of the time before I had experienced tea, I was not being silent and listening to my body going through this process of a meditation while I'm drinking the tea. So that's a very long explanation of what I heard from the tea masters that I studied with. Just drink three bowls in silence in the morning every day mm. and just sit and maybe let it become four or five or six bowls, but just keep drinking the tea and let it relax and have a medicine. And also what I learned from these teachers is that in ancient Chinese medicine, tea is one of those plant compounds, also mushrooms like reishi, but are considered super adaptogens like ginseng. It's one of those, it balances you out. So it's in, in ancient, they found some cache of prescriptions from some Chinese vault and it was almost like herb, 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 drink more tea, herb, herb, drink more tea, herb, 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 drink more tea. So no matter what you're going through, tea balances you out like mm. these other adaptogens, but it's considered one of the master adaptogens in Chinese medicine. Mm. And Ron Teagarden, you might know of Ron Teagarden from Dragon Herbs. He also, after many years of selling just Chinese tonic herbs, started selling tea for the same kind of reasons. But it balances the psychobiological effect because even Western medicine is recognizing the, 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 the issues of psyche that affect influence body's health. Similarly, tea can help that whole system and it's you can't separate mind from matter you can't separate emotions from day-to-day -day life you, all this kind of stuff relationships at work from relationships at home uh especially now in covid when we're, we're all mixed up together but the key is for me tea is about a way of and a person who's you probably have gathered i'm very active mind and somewhat on the spectrum of hyperactive because I'm so much going on, tea was very helpful to me as a meditator to have some physical anchor in, in the physical world so that if I wanted, I wouldn't have to just tap my finger or, or fidget around. Tea helped me to just be 
when in the moments when I was distracted, tea was very helpful. And that's the, the essential meditation tradition around tea as well. Mm. But it doesn't have to be tied to any belief system or faith. It's just tea. Yeah. So let me recap a little bit of what you said to me is tea is secular, whereas non-religious, there's no canon, no specific way of thinking about it, right? So that's one. Two is uh, tea is an adaptogen, right? And three is the practice of drinking three bowls a day as a way to get started. So yeah. as, a, as a follow-up question there. Three bowls in silence at the beginning of the day is the ideal, that drink as much tea as your body and mind feel is appropriate. Uh, but then that's where every day becomes a different dimension of how much tea is appropriate. Absolutely. And what you just said is actually not atypical of what a shaman would say to someone who's drinking ayahuasca for the first time. One of the simple wisdom they say is when in doubt, drink more <laughs> in the case of ayahuasca. But in this case, this would be tea, right? For someone like me, who is a savant, who may not necessarily have that high level of taste and nuance and awareness, I would as assume that I probably need something a little bit stronger versus something that's like less and uh, less flavorful and it requires more sensibility and then nuanced understanding of tea. What would you say to that uh, assumption? From one perspective, all accurate. And that's the other irony is that nothing's quite wrong or right. It's just context. I'm reminded of a woman that spent years traveling around the world on a tea for a tea aficionado magazine and a lot of the tea culture in very high-end tea shops that I love going to because they have the finest and most flavorful and those it's more complex than wine. The the varietals and then that year of that particular mountain is oh my god when they processed it in that batch, oh my god, you got one of those. It's that kind of realm, but then that particular tea requires 198 degrees steeping for 45 seconds to get the right flavor profile. There is a whole world of people that have thermometers and measuring sticks and all that stuff. And that's a very real world. Then she discovered this way of tea of using it as a practice to support mindfulness and presence. And she said after all those years, she still had zero idea what tea was as a spirit medicine in the same way. But then none of it in our overly reductionist, over-categorized minds, we would try to then put which version of tea is better or appropriate. And it's, yes, <laughs> you know, of course, you know, it just depends on, okay, like for example, when I was doing my tea practices and traveling around the world with business suits and planes and airports every morning for five days in a row and just ah, having a tea bag sitting on the plane at six in the morning, drinking that quietly with whatever tea I can get, it actually provided the kind of grounding because it reminds me of the, in during that time when tea was such an anchor for my spiritual practice, it wasn't so much. So you can't say that's inferior tea. It's just the best I had, but at the same time, when in doubt go best. So the key is wildcrafted and organic. And I think the bottom line is 
organic is critical because if you want to have that inner experience of drinking the liquid, sometimes people say I'm, I'm allergic to caffeine or caffeine cracks me out and I get jittery. I have found that there are many times when I'm drinking a lot of organic and wildcrafted tea, and then I have a few cups of non-organic tea, and then all of a sudden I get jittery like the people that I'm suffering because it's the chemicals that were used, the antifungal, the antibacterial, anti-insecticides you know, that cause this distortion in the body that unless you're quiet enough, you're not going to be aware of what's actually going on. But it's then that's again that attunement to presence of what's going on. And another thing happens over time that I found, again, people who are into tea study what kind of tea is good for this time of day and puer and oolong and then this one's more stimulating and this one's more calming. They're all the one plant, Camillus and Sensinensis, but processed in different ways that bring out different properties of the more stimulating or the more calming. And some are better for cooler weather. So all those nuances you can study in a book and go to classes. But I found that over the last 10 years of drinking tea almost every day, that's not necessarily an accomplishment. I'm just saying that's what my experience has been. Yeah. That I the way the best way to learn tea is to drink tea and then learn, oh, when I drank that one for that time of day, that's what I felt. But this one, and then become attuned to maybe holding five or six different types of tea in your hand, and then your body tells you which one you need. Mm. And then that kind of conscious awareness of your own body's processes is also something that happens when I'm in the market. The vegetables like, oh, that one. Trusting my innate body wisdom and not letting my mind get in the way, but using my mind as a tool for discernment, learning from that body in the same way that we say meditation is about putting the heart and mind in right balance where the heart is the guide and the, the mind is the tool rather than the, the mind leading the show. But they both are integrally part of the system. Otherwise, we would just face out and drool, look at the sky. The mind and ego are necessary navigating systems on navigating this three-dimensional reality. Yet we have to attune it and put it in its place for what its purpose is and not get lost in the, in the chatter of the mind. But then when you're mastering your mind from the standpoint of being the integrated heart that sees beyond time and space into time and space, then your mind balances accordingly. And then whatever's going on in the mind, you've got a perspective that includes that. And tea also supports that kind of presence, that kind of mindfulness practice. Yeah, thank you for that. No, this is really great. So guys, for those of you that are watching that are listening to this, on the one hand, I am asking about tea, but on the other, I'm also asking Greg to unpack how he thinks about things, how he trains himself to have a higher level of attunement, mind, body, heart, and spirit, right? High level of awareness such that he can make the best decisions or choices in life, in time and space, as they call it, okay? So with that said, you mentioned something interesting, but you just blew right past it. You. Are you referring to something similar to a muscle test? Similar. It's the same kind of functionality, but once you kind of get it, you don't need to do the muscle test. Your whole body becomes a muscle test because you've been able to differentiate by just having an innate capacity to listen to your the most quiet whisperings of your soul in your body because your soul and body are 
integrally connected such that the somatic awareness, and this is not just new age kind of meditation stuff. This is also attuning to other individuals when you're in conversation or in business situations, navigating instinctive patterns when there's no way to know mentally what to do next. You got to follow your gut and the best leaders are capable of following those hunches and, and knowing how to integrate that into the meticulous moment by moment practices. But that's how you run a business. You have to run it from uh, not knowing and trust the intuition to guide us. And that's what some people call systems awareness or intelligence, or they got a good instinct about things, but it's actually just what you know is real. That's the gist, right? Totally. This is the reason why I have this kind of podcast because some people may say, uh, hey, I used to, the younger version of CK, hey, if it's not measurable, it doesn't exist, what is this thing called intuition or instinct or inner knowing, all that stuff is woo. But then as I got older, a little bit more mature throughout my own journey, and I realized like, oh, okay, so really the, the Nobel laureates, the billionaires, the savvy investors, yes, they do collect data as a way to inform their choices. But at the end of the day, we will never have perfect information. So then what do you do with imperfect information? And at the end, it really comes down to that discernment, that attunement, that find whatever you call it, that inner knowingness to really empower you to make the kind of decision that you want to make the best way that you can. Would you agree? Spot on. And if you can think about it from the most capable leaders, right? There, and when we attune to this kind of practice, we become people that can listen to a lot of what appears like non-correlated information and non-correlated perspectives. And the best leaders are, can take those apparently conflicting viewpoints and opinions and challenging dynamics and come up with a coherent through line to then bring us together in better relationship with the struggles and the complexities. And that requires a degree of being able to be in the middle of something and to step back at the same time and see both perspectives simultaneously, which if we talk about it in the, from the standpoint of neuroscience and the brain, the amygdala is the mammalian brain, fight, flight, feed, and procreate, the four Fs. But I spelled the last one with the PH, by the way. I, I, I like that. I like that. No, that's good. That's good. Thank you for and that. The higher neocortex and the higher functioning systems of the primate brain are the ones that have what we would call heart awareness or systems view or a broader perspective. So most people are attuned to the kind of amygdala driving sense, sense organ oriented perspectives, which you might call ego awareness, which is a functioning, necessary navigating system for us to navigate this reality. But to be able to sit back and have presence is the higher function of the brain. And most people that are operating from this very rat race mentality are not using the capacity that 95% of the brain is really to have presence. And that's that calm resolve that you see in a leader that no matter what's going on or that Aikido master that five people are coming to attack him and he's just, mm -hmm. 
because he, he's able to see what someone calls the tiniest house of time to be able to get into that. And that's why I love like samurai movies and the kind of Bruce Lee mastery, but applying that to leadership and organizations. I was just yesterday talking with my attorney, as a matter of fact, about the fact that the Tao Te Ching, actually I was talking to him, then I reflected after the fact that the Tao Te Ching is actually a manual written for sovereigns by Lao Tzu, not a spiritual meditation book. It's about how to then be more like we're talking about in on the court of running a country or a kingdom of any sort. And that's where those practices are not woo-woo at all. They're the most pragmatic. And there's another great book about the art of war, which is about how to win without ever fighting, how to then use the strategy of mind and soul and then integration together to be from a different perspective outside of the game and then make the game downshift where there's no more conflict and you just win without fighting. That's the ultimate Aikido on a massive level. But then we must cultivate our own version of these practices of presence to be able to do this in the context of our day-to-day -day lives, whether we're chefs or restaurant owners or entrepreneurs or coaches, or it's the same human process of self-knowledge and, and wisdom that we must cultivate, obviously, but just to make it clear. Yeah. Of where, sure. And it's really interesting. I just, I, I'm reminded of a story of about a year and a half ago, because of my commitment to tea and my interest in regenerative agriculture, economic evolution, bioregional economics, innovations of policy and systems and finance together, I was flown to Asia and Hong Kong and Taiwan in particular for a week-long trip to be the economic strategy advisor for an entrepreneur network wanting to cultivate a tea industry here in the North American continent, which has never been done before. Every other co major continent has tea industry except the U.S. So then I was there to meet tea masters and public officials as the economic strategy advisor to tea folk, but then it made my experience and the experience of everyone else far easier because I understood the inner and outer components of tea cultivation and cultivation of individuals through the tea community as a simultaneity. And that non-duality is actually what is necessary and helpful for the kind of system shifts that our civilization need to go through. The kind of the conundrums that I'm facing now is transportation, housing, social equity, economic equality, gender issues, what we do with financial crisis and environmental crisis and fire crisis and infrastructure decision-making and tax policy and politics to manage a place like California. But then how do you then deal with any of those issues without considering the other issues at the same time? Because whether we want to then break them out as separate silos of discussion to make it easier to understand, actually that process of dumbing it down to break it into silos actually makes it more complex because you're putting on a bunch of blinders and blind spots. So we must cultivate the, the capacity in ourselves and as leaders, whether we're civic leaders or private sector leaders or advocates and social activists, in all instances, we have to have the ability to listen to the other points of view and incorporate them into our model for change. And 
that's some of the greatest challenges we face today in the world of leaders who are trying to answer to all these kinds of questions and not having an institutional framework to make it function. So in essence, resolving or addressing those very difficult questions is the essence of my work now. And that's yeah. the work we're doing with various leaders across the state. But why I wove into that is it's actually just a continuation of the same consciousness that we started with, as you were saying. But I wanted to make sure that there's a recognition of the continuum. Yeah, absolutely. Presence. And we would be able to talk about this among some of the most wise business coaches and CEO whisperers that I know, but they would just put it all in business and very kind of conventional terminology. But the ones that are the best that I've met, I drill down and say, there's a lot more behind that screen, right? Isn't there, you've been a practitioner of some wisdom tradition before, and they, you know, often will say yes, or they came about it on their own without having to be in any particular school of thought, yet it's the same logical place to arrive for yeah. true presence. There's so much you just said that we, I mean, there's a lot of different places we can go into the rabbit hole. I want to say this. So Confucius said a beautiful quote. He says, self-mastery, family, country, world. At the end, from my perspective, it's fractal, right? And if you want to make a huge difference, the, in the world level, on the country level, on the company level, at the family level, it ultimately comes down to self and, and specifically the awareness, you know, what kind of uh, sensitivity, what kind of sensibility, what kind of, what level of awareness do you have to uh, observe the objective as well as the subjective. And from that space, then you have a lot more options to think about rather than just thinking about it on the tactical level, rather than just thinking about this from the strategic level, you can also think in the systematic level, in the intergenerational level, in the humanity level, so forth. So I really appreciate everything that you're, you, that, that you just said. But I want to segue the conversation a little bit um, before we get into even more esoteric and, and metaphysical stuff. Yeah. Uh, what is that origin story of this curiosity, this uh, journey of awareness? Where did you start? Was there a particular event or setback or wounds or trauma that have you say, hey, I want to really deepen my awareness? Thank you for asking. Good question. Three different simultaneous thoughts came to mind that are different aspects of my personality development that informed my current worldview in some ways. And there's probably four or five others that were happening in my childhood and early teens. One, Mr. Rogers. And if you don't know who Mr. Rogers is, then there's a documentary about him. Watch it. Beautiful documentary. I loved it. Yeah. About then just the kind of, how do I put it? What comes to mind is the mature masculine can be compassionate and kind and present without having to be seen as weak. Secondly, Carl Sagan, when my father took me to see Carl lecture at Caltech Jet Propulsion Laboratories when I was 12, 
that really cracked open my experience to see things because I was already a very precocious child interested in astronomy and physics and chemistry and science by that time. But something in me told me there was a much more larger story. In retrospect, there's something much more tangible in reality beyond the Newtonian model of physics of the three-dimensional perspective that is the driving worldview of a materialist and reductionist civilization. So Carl was, we're all star stuff. There's something that just made such, it was just such simple common sense that by that time I had realized that the world was not operating from common sense and adopting belief systems, regardless of the faith, from books written thousands of years ago from tribal people that didn't have any sense of what's going on today. And then people are regressing their worldviews to misinterpret what was actually the, the archetypal reference in a lot of these early wisdom traditions. And they're not singling in one faith or worldview out because that, that's indi- in, indi- indicated in almost every faith of some regress, regressed, m- reduced mode of understanding And then when I saw Carl, oh my God, that kind of cracked through the scientism reductionist perspective on uh, that there's some kind of intelligence. But then the seeking of that intelligence, that kind of what is the deep, because star stuff isn't just stuff. I had some instinct that there was something much deeper. You might call it the cosmic intelligence, the, the universal order that made stars and galaxies work and what's that pattern that there's galaxies on different sides of the universe that are working in the same pattern what is that intelligent order you can ascribe it to a divinity or in a persona or it's just intelligence regardless i was curious about that but the wisdom traditions of the east were also probably the most rigorous in making it logically consistent with the scientific steps that are necessary to do inquiry in a methodical way that only now in the last decade or two, the modern physicists that have to go into the theoretical realm that have no way to actually experiment to prove what they're thinking is this theory versus that one. It's all in conceptual. Then those modern physicists have entered the realm that ancient philosophers who think about things rigorously around the nature of the cosmology of reality and the structure of creation, they're coming up with the very same kinds of frameworks. So when I started seeing the equivalence of those frameworks in my teens, as I started studying physics and science and recognizing the consciousness physics in these ancient traditions, it was the precursor that there was a number of books that were written at the time, the Dancing Wooly Masters and the Tao of Physics, both pointed toward this But from the standpoint of the scientific community, when I was at UCLA studying science, chemistry, physics, and mathematics, it was still seen as something more cultural or in the society, sociology, or religious studies department, rather than advanced physics. But now the world is getting there beyond quantum. But there's different schools of thought. And but all those things were bubbling by the time I was in college. And then that's when I started getting, I, when I was 16 is when I started meditating and studying these Eastern wisdom traditions that I can go into another time. But that's, that's all related to a worldview that I brought into the business world. I brought into my work in finance. And, and because fundamentally, 
the difference between this expanded wisdom tradition consciousness, which is a little esoteric for most people, you could also see the point of view of environmentalism or systems thinking and science as just more contemporary pragmatic approaches to that same kind of expansive perspective. But then it wasn't that out there. How many different Donella Meadows, Buckminster Fuller, Carl Sagan, Fritjof Capra, you know, Janine Benyus, all these people, Hazel Henderson are all scientists and economists and thinkers that are very much plugged into the reality of our world. And they're coming from a perspective that is outside the paradigm of materialist reductionist science. And that's, that's I think, the evolution of our culture from materialist reduc reductionist point of view and arguing at different points within that to just shifting the worldview and then the conversations and questions change. But it doesn't have to be a woo-woo thing. And that's the kind of evolution we are in economics and finance and systems approaches to resolving the environmental and social challenges of the time required this kind of earth-oriented perspective. So there you go. Uh, there definitely is a lot, but sure for my own personal story here. Please. In my younger days, I thought I knew everything after my bachelor's. And then the more I study the master's and the PhD, then I realized like, oh, actually I know very little. There's so much more I don't know. So I get more humble by just how much I don't know, the unknown unknowns. And, and it's beautiful the way that you said it, that even with the advent of exponential technology, the internet is a great example of that. We are interconnected, our economics, geopolitical situations, resource allocations, COVID, right? It just proves that we are indeed more more connected than what we may think we are when we were first born. But let's actually jump ahead a bit because you are a big thinker, you're a futurist of sorts in the macroeconomic space. The angle for you, the purpose, shall we say, the mission, right, as you go about it is regenerative economic development. Can you say more about that? How did you come up with that and say, I'm going to do everything that I can to move towards that destination. Thank you. Good question. And I appreciate our conversation as well very much. This is all wonderful material to cover together. I remember being at UCLA studying economics. My major was at first biochemistry, where I took a bunch of chemistry, physics, and mathematics, and then realized that I didn't want to be a lab scientist as such. So I changed the major to math computer science. But then I also realized after getting a job in college doing coding that I didn't want to just be a coder or a computer person. I wanted to be looking at the larger system. So I changed my major to economics and business administration, incorporating my science and technology acumen. And I continued actually work supporting myself and part-time work as a computer programmer, mostly mm. self-taught. But that's history. But why I brought that up is that the, the perspectives of this, the biochemistry department, the tools and, and resources in advanced technology, DARPA, NET, and all the kinds of stuff that were going on in the 80s and, and computer that really set the stage for now. And the kind of ideas of network theory and neural networks and systems analysis were very intriguing to me, but then applying that toward business and international finance was really my passion. 
and I actually spent three years. Why? To, Why finance out of all things? Well, I don't really know, but in retrospect, it just became like this thread. But let me share with you an answer to that. Economics is really about managing the resources of the economy, right? But what is the economy? The way our system is set up is money is the fuel. It's the flow rather than the goal. It's a scorekeeper of where things are moving and what is valuable. Yet in the economic theory of our time, the conventional economic perspective, money is the center of discussion. But then the curiosity is, well, is money the determinant of success in a business only? Does the business do more than just make money? What about these other dimensions of society, of the way that we have to govern the commons and look at factors of marketplace dynamics and politics? So I became a student of Japan and studied intensely Japanese language, Japanese culture, and Japanese economic history and the, actually the history of Japan is how it got to its point of view, post-World War II economics, because at the time in the 80s, Japan was eating our lunch. With They, were, they had more money. They were buying like major iconic assets like Rockefeller Center and running around before the Japanese market crashed. So I was like, if we can't beat them and they're really eating a lot, let's learn about them and then get into that mindset. And I was actually going to move to Japan. But where I, where I decided not to after a whole range of things, that's probably another day. But the essence of it is that was the worldview that I was thinking from this, the convergence of all these factors to make better economic decisions and still seeking for something more than the economics department paradigm as if economics is separate from history, is separate from science, is separate from, and it was just, it just never made sense, after, especially after going deep in every, these, every one of these other dimensions and my kind of side major of studying Japanese and the culture of another mindset other than the Western worldview gave me another perspective that how economics is being applied in another different worldview than the European assumption set and also the kind of Taoist and, and Buddhist perspectives that inform Japanese policy decision-making, like the fact that Japan has a hundred-year plan as an overgeneralization, where you've never heard about that here in, in Wall Street, mm -hmm. but then major Japanese corporations succeeding, like Mitsubishi Denki and Mitsui and all those other companies that were based on hundreds of years of, of, of established history, succeeding because of the long view, and then coordinating with government, whereas government here is not supportive of business because there's that collusion that is considered corruption where the the culture of japan worked it out where you can have these different dimensions work together that was just the entry point then i got involved with a group called isec that at the time was 500 universities in 80 countries and the whole idea is cultivating international cooperation and understanding through having business people learn and grow together across the planet through exchange programs, internships, symposia, conferences, and internships. And I was deeply involved and I went to a number of their international congresses as a representative of the United States on the steering committees and stuff like that. But my point in bringing that up is in 88, the United Nations came up with a term called sustainable development. And this group called ISEC did seminars around the world on, on that topic, which was simply the very, the, it, the, the idea alone 
reconciled the conundrum I just outlined, which of all these disparate points of view conflicting, and are you an economist or a historian or a sociologist or a finance person or an environmentalist? Sustainable development collapses all those into an integrated worldview that leadership must incorporate, which is simply said in the definition of the United Nations that came up with the term, sustainable development means meeting the needs of the current generation without compromising the needs of future generations. I like that. Yeah. Now, some, from the standpoint of an economist using very advanced mathematics to design resource management over many decades, that's the most pragmatic thing. And the most ironic thing is that perspective was lost in most economic theory because whatever that out there thing is, was considered outside the economic equation, which is pure insanity from my standpoint. It's an economic blind spot. So sustainable finance or responsible investing or impact investing, as it were, is an attempt at grabbing on these other factors that are, are left out of the economic equation in that earlier mindset and putting that back into to make a much more robust model of reality based on reality as it is rather than theories in a laboratory. So then the weaving of that is my practice and then the implementation that into practice is my work. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I like that. As someone who is looking long in a game that's designed for short, mm -hmm. what are some of the failures that you have had as a way to convert the unconverted? Economics, business typically look for quarter results, right? So in the, they play short games typically. Mm. And now you're articulating sustainable goals, development, long game, collective whole. It's, uh, it's unusual for the business community typically where they're optimizing for quarterly results, profits and so forth. So if you could share with us maybe some of your pivotal moments. Oh, okay. Going about it this way, it doesn't work. Going, I should go about it that way. I should go about it this way as a way to inspire a mindset shift for people that's in the game of business for maximizing profits. Thank you. It comes back to purpose as well. That's where this is where we cannot separate our inner purpose as an individual in society from the larger questions about what role, like the, the idea of ikigai, you may mm -hmm. be familiar with. In fact, I've got a book here right now that was a joy. This is a yeah. really good book, by the way, is that if anyone is really curious about their role to address the very question that you asked, you first must know what your ikigai is. And it's a changing thing over time as we grow and change. But to be able to be connected to that thread of purpose and insight as you grow and morph is to be on purpose in life rather than seeking purpose of life. Like someone gave me a sticker. Wait, wait, back up one sentence. Say that again. I think that was pretty good. Purpose of life instead of seeking purpose, right? But okay. sometimes the experimental process is a process of discovering purpose as your purpose while you're expressing the unknown purpose. And that's where it becomes like a Zen cone. The, the friend of mine gave me a sticker that said in the pursuit of magic, but hold on a second, let's take the in pursuit of a out. And just, I took the sticker and cut it and just put magic. Not because I was dismissive of the idea of pursuit of magic, but if we're embracing magic, there's, because if we're affirming every day that we're pursuing 
magic, then magic is always there. Out and, there somewhere. Out yeah. there rather mm -hmm. than, hold on a second, I've got a little magic that I'm just going to find mm -hmm. more of. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got a spark of light that's a little mm -hmm. cultivated kindling that is mm -hmm. I can make it more, but it's already here. There's a 100% mm -hmm. proactive mm -hmm. reality that I mm -hmm. already have it. It just needs to grow in the same way that a lion cub is already a lion. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to do, I'm a lion, I'm a lion, I'm a mm -hmm. lion. That's like... What the fuck? Right, you know, look right. in the mirror. You're just a little lion. You don't have to do the meditation practice of recognizing that you're infinite consciousness as a human. You are infinite consciousness as a human. Just yeah. wake up and then live as a human from the point of view of being infinite consciousness as a human. Literally. That's mm -hmm. simple. Mm -hmm. But these presence practices we talked about. But then what I came about in these turning points of discovering coming from the wisdom traditions and then discovering my passion for systems after going through cycles of science and computer science to econ economics and international. Oh, I'm actually interested in systems. It was only in the fifth year of college that started clicking. Yeah. And there are no mistakes. Everything's just a lesson. So that's one thing to keep in mind is that you go, I'm going to go for this and know what it is that you're going for and what the outer world says is success is usually a distraction because as long as you've got the lesson, keep moving. For example, mm -hmm. I produced four conferences and events across the country around green economy <clears throat> between 2008 and 2011, 12, and realized I didn't need to be in the conference production business because it, they were enough to give me what I needed to know about how conferences were produced. Mm -hmm. And the goal was not about being even known that I was a conference producer, but just having the taste in my mouth to know what it's like. So when I'm talking to a conference producer, I've been through the ropes. Mm -hmm. Same thing in like in a kitchen. I, I know you had Eric Oberhalter. If you know how to make sauce and chop lettuce the right way, you can be the chef and tell him that's how you make the sauce because I was it was my job to do that. But you have to have that innate, you know, body wisdom. So there's no mistakes and it's all just lessons. Mm -hmm. So back to my turning points were. So this is a podcast where we talk about purpose quite a lot. Oh, okay. And it, I, I get questions a lot of, Hey, CK, I'm seeking my purpose. What's my purpose? What's my purpose? And, and then I, I'm using Ikigai as a process to help me find my purpose. And what I realized is that, Hey, you are actually not looking for a singular purpose because purpose change anyway, right? What you're looking for is an experience as a sense of purpose, as you're moving forward, as long as you get more and more of that sense of being immersed in your purpose, that's what it is. Maybe you can call it the pursuit of purpose. Maybe you can call it the mastery of purpose, whatever you, how you language it. It's exactly what you are pointing to. It's not a singular thing. It's moving forward in the and, and, and develop and cultivate this spark that you already have within you. You're already living your purpose. So keep me moving forward. I just want to underline what you're describing. Continue. I, I love it. And lifelong learning is something that my father really exemplified when he was around my age. He went to UK and went to Oxford as an exchange student in his 50s. And he was among teens and 20 year olds in school in 
Oxford living with an old couple as the exchange student while he was a you know retired professional. And that kind of inspiration to just go for it and try something completely out of the blue. I mean, he's self-taught as an attorney and all this other stuff. So all these things were giving me the embodied experience that lifelong learning is not a pursuit. It's a lifelong learning of being curious and open to knowing that you will never know and you will always be learning. And then that sole purpose is very consistent with what you've just said of like, it's a growing in every moment, but it's about being able to be harmonious and instinctively aligned with your organism as you navigate and following that little heart guidance. So for me, that kind of heart guidance wasn't so much of like singular moments, but magical occurrences. For example, after traveling to Japan, interviewing with the CEO of an amazing company and realizing that the job was there that I had dreamed of. But in the middle of the interview process in Tokyo, I had this un indescribable moment. I cannot describe it in words, but the whole story just crashed without any kind of outer disaster, but inside I just saw the whole thing unravel of three years of hard work to realize that I am not to live in Japan and work for this amazing company in the dream job. And the irony was to talk to the CEO himself after he was going to hire me for a substantial salary out of college mm -hmm. and tell him this is not right for me and not have any rational explanation whatsoever that he flew me to Japan to then see the operation and realizing got to stop. And then coming back to Los Angeles and sitting drooling, looking at the sky, wondering what's next and not knowing but knowing that listening to the no, that's not right and going into the unknown is a journey towards soul purpose and being comfortable with not knowing. And in fact, embracing that as a way of being in every moment enables me to then listen, where then weeks later, I'm in a meditation ashram in New York State, literally weeks after I get back from Japan and just, Sorry. you know, can crash. you? Sorry, I, I, I want to underline something before you move on to the meditation part. I apologize for, in, yeah, for, yeah. for interrupting. Could you sh one may say that was your dark night of the soul moment. That was the identity shift or whatever you call it. There is an epiphany moment. There was a moment of disillusionment or awakening of that, right? I assume it's not as easy as you describe it. So can you share with us about the transition, maybe the grieving of the identity shift or, you know, exactly what happened during the time that you told your Japanese yeah. boss to where you actually find some clarity and, and elation from that cocooning or decocooning stage? Then that's what's fantastic about the word disillusionment is it's usually considered the most negative thing that I was disillusioned and disappointed and my whole story of my identity just imploded. I might as well kill myself. Some people come to that kind of mm -hmm, mm -hmm, stark mm -hmm. crisis that mm -hmm. they don't have a reason to live because they've been disillusioned from the way the world was and therefore their identity doesn't live anymore. So therefore they're so tied to that identity 
-hmm. that they think their very life embodiment is so tied to that ego story that they literally kill themselves mm -hmm. which is pure insanity in some ways because it's not able to differentiate these perspectives of identity and purpose so when you look at the word disillusionment what does it actually mean in a very conventional or a common sense kind of an uh, analysis that anyone would like it means dissolving the illusion so if you have an illusion that you're operating on fantasy and then all of a sudden the fantasy is taken away and your illusion then technically you are actually having more clarity and that's mm -hmm. an upgrade in intelligence that's an mm -hmm. upgrade in effectiveness in living mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. actually are not operating from illusion you're operating from truth Mm -hmm. But then if we turn your perspective of disillusionment, like that girlfriend, oh, she was cheating on me or she left me or she really didn't want to be with me that way. And I was operating for months on that perspective that she was going to be my wife. And oh, my God, she left. Then the illusion that she wanted to have something that I didn't or vice versa means that the illusion is crashed. And that's a horrible day. But that's actually one of the best days. And if you can get aware of those bad days or when you have to change direction because the fantasy you were operating on and for me it was particularly troubling because i had then become aware of the fact that i spent three years preparing intensely and spending you know thousands of dollars on classes and energy and all this to prepare to be uh, an expert in japan and watch it all just dissolve and when literally it was just like a, it just left me in a moment and that's a long story but the short version of then embracing the clarity. So the clarity that I got was the illusion just got stripped away. And I have to then cultivate a perspective to be able to see deeper enough in reality to see what is the reality that I could not see before. So I had to go on the journey of the hero's journey of going into the dark unknown to listen. And that is something that we all have to cultivate. And that's also part of knowing ourselves. And in the, in the spirit of everything's a lesson, there is no mistakes. And one of the greatest things as a leader, when Richard Branson told his team, I trust you to make mistakes, means that he's recognizing every human being is a human being and we make mistakes. So we trust the people to know that when they make a mistake and everything goes sideways in this particular department or initiative or project, or they lose money or whatever, that's part of the process of success rather than our culture's ego oriented to say, you know, that somehow this illusion that every person who's a success doesn't that's we know you've gone through that with all your other speakers as well so then for myself i came back from japan went to that meditation center in upstate new york to go see my spiritual teacher at the time and she suggested i talk to one of the people that was a trustee of a nonprofit that was a very successful currency trader at prudential in, in wall street so he kind of got a sense of my passion for economics and environmentalism. And he gave me a brochure from Prudential Securities analyzing socially responsible investing in 1988. Mm. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got it. I think this is where I need to go because I was like, 
still thinking capital markets were just a bunch of Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street, Wall Street kind of game. And it mm -hmm. was just all corrupt, money grubbing fucks. Mm -hmm. And that's an intentional use of term because that's a vocabulary that you might use on the trading floor when I was there. But I got into a, a bond trading and bond analysis at Smith Barney in 91 because I met someone at the meditation center who mm. said, Greg, how's work? I'm like, I'm looking for a job. He says, why don't you come work for me? And I'm like, what do you do? He says, I'm at Smith Barney. I'm like, what's that? He said, we're an investment firm and we deal with bonds and stocks. And I'm like, oh, okay. So magically, I had already had a job interview set up across the street at a computer company in downtown Los Angeles. And his office was across the street. And the thing that was really like a sign was the interview I'd already set up three days later was 333 South Hope Street, downtown Los Angeles, for a computer job for the Capital Group, which is the American Mutual Funds, and then across the street with 333 South Grand, where he worked. Mm. So I was like posed with, if, if the signs were not clear from some magical influence in the universe that... Do you want hope or do you want grand? Do you want to work for your friend or some anonymous job as a functionary inside of a machine? Okay, I'll be his apprentice. It was an immediate and I took the job and then that's how I learned like an apprentice how to trade bonds and then a bunch of other stuff came out of that. But I really didn't even know that I was meant to be in that job after six months because I told him I don't want to do just bonds. I want to do socially responsible investing. And then mm -hmm. I went and worked for one of the first stockbrokers in socially responsible investing in Los Angeles in 91. And we didn't get any business for six months when I was cold calling people, trying to get people to buy into investing with us. Mm. So I went back to the first guy and learned a municipal bond business. And still I was lost, but I just followed my instinct to just say, keep going. And then here I am 20 years later, being sought out to speak and advise. And now we're working on some rather comprehensive projects that we won't have time to get into. But the essential thought is using the capacities that I have to help guide the state's leadership and family offices and pensions and local leadership like mayors and counties on how to manage our money in the state of California as a living laboratory. Mm -hmm. To then model what every jurisdiction across the planet needs to do with their money is essentially our work here because mm. we have a hundred trillion dollars in the pension system. And back to an earlier question that you had, what's that disconnect between the short-term and long-term thinking? Mm -hmm. One of the greatest thinkers in this respect today, I think, is a man named Ashby Monk at Stanford uh, in the Global Project Center. And he said, from the standpoint of just talking within the vocabulary and framework of finance, there's a disconnect between the Wall Street and the, the capital markets players, not just Wall Street, but the, the stock market and the bond market investment banking system is quarter to quarter, mm -hmm. making returns, putting up record on the board, venture capital, Bitcoin mm -hmm. becoming accumulation, whatever William Quigley is saying, all that's <laughs> within the paradigm of making money for money's sake generally mm -hmm. overgeneralizing there's a lot more purpose in that than i'm actually saying but then putting profits up on the board and to get profit in the short-term perspective is that paradigm overgeneralized but then you have a disconnect in the capital markets of the people that actually own the assets and pensions are a really good example and philanthropy is another one but pensions have a long-term view we just closed the in the last few years the civil war pension paid its last check to a descendant of someone in the Civil War. So then 
that means, generally speaking, pensions have a multi-generational and often multi-decade and sometimes a hundred-year view, view of being a steward and a fiduciary for this set of assets. So you can see the disconnect between priorities and objectives of managing this chunk of money compared to making returns in the stock market. And that disconnect is something that I became very aware of when I was a bond trader because I started looking at risk and reward when analyzing a 30-year bond compared to a three-year bond and willing to take less return or more return based on risk, reward, and time frame of the uncertainty of a 30-year capacity for an institution to pay back cash flow gave me the, the early views of what risk, reward, and goals of money and outcomes are needing to be juxtaposed and what how do you price that into an economic equation today for a security became the kind of discipline but the discipline of making those decisions is called modern portfolio theory so which is before, you, before you go to the modern portfolio theory yeah, yeah. I, that's something i definitely want to drill in on but i want to unwind just a little bit please do take me where you want me to go because i'm, yeah, I was I'm right. you're making that dichotomy choice right you have you 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 fork in a road work in a computer or 3330 grant, right? A life of grantness. So you made the choice of, oh, I'm going to trust my gut. There's a new opportunity. And That's I want it. to underline this with people who are listening to this because due to COVID, a lot of business are out, right? Yeah, let me just go right there to be right on the point and then please can get back to what you're saying. That yeah. idea of trusting your gut in a situation where you're stressed, you're trying to figure out what job to take, you don't have any money, you need a paycheck, you just need a job, what do I do? I've been in many situations like that. As a person that didn't come from a lot of wealth, I had to make a living to make a living. I didn't have a lot of savings through those years. So when you feel a gut, a gut feeling, my way of helping my clients and people is if you see a, a, a duality of a choice where your gut's saying, go this way, but you can't be sure if it's just your fear driving you, the one that feels good and calm and you can take a deep breath and feel good with, no matter whether the logic lines up or not, the one that feels good, not the one that feels more comfortable and less painful, but the one that feels more, oh, no matter what, I feel better with that decision, even though I don't understand it, I feel more relaxed and calm and it just feels like it rings true, that kind of knowing of that ding, that's what you must listen to and cultivate that capacity. And it's the same thing back to T, that presence of being able to differentiate two different three different states of mind and which one is agitated and which one is based on sole purpose is the same inner work and just bring it all home. Then the decision for Smith Barney was it just how made, made more sense. It made more sense. So I just went with that feeling somewhat ambiguous for months of whether this was the right choice, but just continue to go. It just feels right. It just feels right. So the feeling I trust, even though my mind doesn't have a rationale or logic, is that cultivating the capacity for following the good feeling is the essential teaching. Yeah, perfect. And, and this actually may be the answer I was, I was looking for. But nonetheless, let me underline this a bit. Since we, on this podcast, we talk a lot about purpose. So this type of nuance 
questions gets asked a lot. And then the metaphor that we use a lot here is it's like eating junk food right? That you are going to get a short-term satisfaction or some kind of adrenaline rush or something, or eat really healthy, organic food that you get that satisfying feeling, right? There's no noise. There's no fireworks when you eat it, but it's afterwards, it's good, clean energy versus junk food. It's you know, very tasty, but afterwards you don't, you feel like shit. Similar to that analogy. Yeah. Very similar. That's about okay. what's good for the whole or what's good for now. And the beautiful thing is that once you cultivate this capacity for tuning in, you can find where those things merge together. From the standpoint of junk food versus healthy food, I have been a very passionate chef in my own uh, amateur in my own way. And my goal is to make the most ridiculously tasty everything with no sugar and good fats and good salts and high fiber, superfood nutrient. So I just made like pumpkin, stevia, coconut, chia seed, almond flour cupcakes last night. And they like taste ridiculously good. No, you're just making me hungry, dude. Thank I you. Know, sorry. I know. Sorry. You drop it in and get some. We'll go to the park and I'll save a cupcake in the freezer. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. But I want to get to that point I was trying to make here. So yeah, when you join that company, you're mm -hmm. new to it. You're learning the mechanics, right? You were cold calling, blah, blah, blah. And, but the positive feedback hasn't come back yet. Yes, it's sometimes how, many months and sometimes right. how do you sustain that faith? This is still the right thing to do, even though there is no positive feedback loop of, oh, wow, clients are coming like floodgates or things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's one of the dichotomy people have. If I'm following my Dharma purpose, yeah. it should be easy. If it's not easy, Oh, maybe I should have done the other thing. That's easy. Go ahead and well, say it. I remember to be very uncomfortably clear in 23 years ago, it was 97. It was three years after I went out on my own to set up my own private practice inside of UBS Payne Weber as a trainee stockbroker, bond broker, because I was watching my boss at, at the firm that I was with him after Smith Barney, and we moved to another firm. And then I left that firm. He was making like $20,000 a day. And I'm like, I could probably make $20,000 a month pretty quickly if I can learn what he's doing. But it took me seven years to get to that level. And I was assuming that I'd get there in a couple months, maybe a year. So by 97, I was having trouble with my finances and the irony and the shame that I felt was here. I am a financial advisor at a major institutional firm and everyone's all dressed up and looking happy. And some of my friends in the same boat that are broke, but not really broke, but just, Hey, I could use some help to make ends meet. And I remember talking with my dad and he said, Greg, you've been in the business for six years and you're struggling. Maybe you should find another career. And I'm like, no, I know that there's something deeper. And I didn't even know. And I was pretty stressed out that day, but I remember that I was really being pushed from all sides and something in me said, I got to follow that instinct to stick with it. And it only became evident what that stick with it is 
13 years later, 10 years ago, about what my purpose is that I realized today, 5% of the people in my field actually are interested in what I'm working with in my field. And 5% of the people in finance are interested in my field. So there's a very narrow role that I play, but I feel that it's now I found my place, but it takes sometimes, and there's a book I'm reading called Grit that I recommend to your viewers by Angela. Yeah, it's, it speaks to a lot of this stuff. But where I'm going with that is to really respond to, you're not going to know, and you may not know for a decade whether you're on the right track. You just have to keep going. And that's where this discovery of who you are and what you're here to bring about requires some real meditation and getting down below the noise and cultivating a mind not from a spiritual point of view, from a point of view of effectiveness of life, which actually is a spiritual point of view because you're aligned with your soul that lives beyond or not necessarily. If you, Depending on your belief system, it doesn't mean that you have a soul that lives on, but there's a part of you that transcends time and space in this moment that you cannot deny. And listening to that higher intelligence and however you frame it from the standpoint of your paradigm and worldview, you can word it any way you want, but there's something magical that you must tune into. And if you cultivate whatever practices you, whether it's tennis, surfing, meditation, ayahuasca. Uh, I mean, ayahuasca, I think, actually is a tool, but mm -hmm. not a practice. And I've seen okay. too many people use ayahuasca as their spiritual practice, and they're missing the point of doing their inner work. And then they're as fucked up as they were before. Uh, because they're using ayahuasca, but they're not doing the inner machinery of their psyche. And they just keep doing ayahuasca. I've seen that happen. I see. So uh, like a replacement of the work. Yeah, the work has to be. And, and also yeah. with respect to ayahuasca to go straight there, if you're doing it in a setting with people that haven't done their inner work, it doesn't necessarily make ayahuasca a beneficial experience. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. It's very nuanced, yeah, but we can move really forward great. from that. Yeah, that's a whole other webinar. We should do another podcast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, be beautifully said. Mm. Jim Carrey's share about his father's story. He said his father is the funniest man, even based on e even till today. But his father chose the safer path, I think, in insurance ah. or something like that. And eventually got fired. And he said the lesson that he learned from his father was that it's probably failure is probable. You might as well go with what you truly love. And in my, for my entrepreneur friends is the same advice I will give them is the probability of failure is high. You might as well go with what you truly want to do, which is follow your Dharma or your inner calling, your purpose, whatever it is, because at the end of the day, what's the point of accumulating this scoreboard called money if you didn't enjoy your journey anyway so. yes indeed and that's coming back to purpose you know what i think it was socrates that said know thyself and how many thousands of people said it since so it's not just his words obviously but that purpose that alignment with your own true grit your own capacity your own magic your own gift you can frame it in a thousand different ways ikigai it's still just being and, and that's the journey for all of us and as you said so it just continues to evolve as we change and grow and then the capacity to be resilient on that journey moment by moment 
is really the, the goal of Zen, that Zen is not really a thing. It's not really a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's a way of being that is either expressed fully or not, and it can never be described. Yet there's that 12 ox, 10 ox herding pictures that you might want to put into one of your, you've seen, which is the master after coming off the mountain and having achieved full integration. He's just, he just appears like an ordinary human being because he's living naturally as himself and in natural relationship with the world. And that's really the goal of all these esoteric traditions is just be in life as an effective, loving expression of, of the universe, because we are connected to the universe. And again, back to Carl Sagan, we're star stuff. But then the question about what is the nature of star stuff? Is it conscious? And am I conscious? Is the And that's when we get down into the paradigmatic exploration of the nature of matter and spirit, that duality gets collapsed. If you were to oversimplify the problem of our society is that we've separated uh, spirit and matter into two separate things that are conflicting as a duality rather than a continuum of two different versions of one underlying substrate of spirit consciousness and matter as a manifestation of that. Uh, and that's where we're getting into these esoteric physics. But then it means that we need to adjust our worldview and our institutions to do that, to be attuned to that very simply from the standpoint of science if we were to take the newtonian understanding of matter and our bodies as a result and then incorporate the fact that biology and biochemistry are based on a newtonian perspective of chemistry and physics but then go hold on a second we have entire corporations and industries and regulatory bodies based on a, a way of seeing reality matter from a hundred years ago, rather than updating the way that energy physics and energy and matter work together as a scientific perspective inside of how biology functions. Because by having blindness to that capacity, we will then, we will not see what scientists and biologists are seeing that bees have intelligence to communicate across space in electromagnetic and light signals and they can see patterns of light that come off of flowers that are beyond the visual spectrum but that means that they've tapped into non-newtonian capacities in their neuro nervous system that we don't have explanations for because we're still operating in a muggle chemistry in the way we see animals and life and that's just it's pure idiocy when we don't even use what we have in hand by having the chemistry and advanced physics and biology department talk together in universities. And that's beginning to happen. I'm just, I'm not oversimplifying. No, this is great. This is perfect. Most I mean, of industry is operating on a very 3D point of view, and it's still out of touch with the reality of advanced science because most individuals are still fighting for what they don't understand. Yeah, in, in other words, they're, they're trying to, still trying to maintain regressed reductionist ineffective paradigms in order to perpetuate their objectives of money and power and then missing the point that th there's a way to resolve that by adopting the paradigm of what is extant in the system yeah a lot to unpack it is super great because again this is a fractal conversation where we can zoom in and zoom out uh <laughs> yeah
So on your blog post, you had quoted Buckminster Fuller. He said, you can never change, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes an existing model obsolete. Let's talk about how that phrase is interpreted. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at the unsuccessful revolutions, like the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution, to tear down the autocrat, the aristocrat, and then replace it with an equally undesirable regime is one way of interpreting Buckminster Fuller's thing is you have to destroy the old system and disrupt it and create a new one and then build something out of the rubble. Well, which that's not really what Bucky was saying. He talked about regeneration and symbiosis and, and living systems in a larger system called Spaceship Earth that is not able to divide one version of another, but he's saying what I, the analogy I'm using will probably represent what I'm trying to say better is that the caterpillar contains the butterfly. So the butterfly doesn't kill the caterpillar to become a butterfly. It uses transmutation to morph the system into a better system, but the caterpillar will never understand. Like the caterpillar is chomping and looking at these things flying around and having no idea that's who they are. But then that's what we must be is among ourselves for those who don't see what's innately potential within us. And then and, and compassionately engage in relationship with, the, with people that are in caterpillar mind to know that we all have butterflies in us as butterflies that the, the caterpillars don't recognize. Not saying I'm superior, but then that kind of meta-analysis of whatever the next system is cannot be an antagonism with the old system. That's a regressed reductionist paradigm that actually we're trying to move beyond for a whole earth model of finance and economics. Got it. No, that, that's beautiful. Great. I, I really appreciate your underlying that. So with that consciousness, with that level of understanding, biomimicry, as you call it, maybe you could start off by talking about from the, from the micro first, then we can go to the macro. What is your philosophy around resource allocation with that understanding of systematic impact, everything that you do, you're right, has a systematic impact. Let me give you some example, right? Yeah, yeah. Lab, he uses the barbell strategy. That's his way of simplifying his strategy. Tony Robbins in his book and in talking to a lot of the wealthy people at the end result is, Hey, follow the index fund strategy. So that's their philosophical uh, point of view. So with your understanding of this systems point of view, how would you articulate uh, your investment philosophy? Thank you. This is a podcast in itself or a, a conversation <laughs> itself. Just unpacking that one question, it would require uh, an hour to do it really, to give it justice. Sure. But the essence of going back to what I was referring to, which is modern portfolio theory. Right. Based so overgeneralizing the idea that businesses function and the economy's function is money making and then money is the fuel for financing everything else but the that the, the activity and the the utility of making money is the outcome and just accumulating money to go spend like in an example Many people say, well, I don't do socially responsible investing. I just make as much money as I can and I give it away to charity. Then that means if you're 
investing and your business activities are destroying ecosystems and then your charity is to restore ecosystems hold on a second what do we what's the disconnect here so then collapsing those dualities into we can integrate means that we need to take into account these factors that are left out of the money only equation and look at the economic blind spots so when we look at the core of fundamentals in economic theory these an idea of this is the business and economic system the economy and anything that's not part of this equation are just going to be put aside as externalities so we can focus in on the core dynamism and the dynamics of how something works to reduce it down and that's a very effective and important process of thought to put these other things aside for a thought experiment but one of the problems of our society is we didn't put those things back in into the real world. So the idea of being able to say this business is separate from nature and separate from the people that are working in the business and separate from the community is pure illusion. Another way of saying it is looking like this. If we look at earth and we look at society within earth and the economy as part of society or economies inside of society inside of earth then they're nested systems by saying, if we just move the energies to them to, to recognize that flow, but when we look at the way institutions are designed in economic theory, money's over here, nature's over there, and society's over there, and they're three conceptual separate systems that have mathematical formulas for each of them, but then that's missing the point of observed reality that then people are trying to use an ineffective model, just like the Copernican revolution. How many times were people trying to design all these things with the, uh, a geocentric universe rather than a heliocentric model that actually makes these equations much easier. All right, you lost me on the heliocentric. What the, oh, I beg your pardon. Yeah. This was the person that put the sun at the center of the solar system in this right. model. But prior to that, there were many different attempts at modeling how the stars are moving and to explain the mathematics of stars and other uh, orbiting things based on the sun, the earth being the center of reality. And it was just so convoluted and complex. But when you put the sun at the middle, it's just like, oh, of course, it makes much more sense. But then people that fought that wanted to go back to the earlier, more regressed version. And that's what we're dealing with now. Mm. Uh, money in politics versus money and environment versus nature versus society versus black lives matter versus environmental justice versus pollution Climate versus change, yeah. politics and it's all these like competing which priorities first rather than how do we make the whole work these are all yeah. symptoms of a deeper disease in the same way that cancer is a symptom of a deeper disease not correct so then I don't know if I answered your question, but please keep me on track here because we don't have a lot more time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, uh, let me just go back to the, the, the question of finance and how I'm doing it. Yeah, you right. The, the investment philosophy, correct. I know that modern portfolio theory is built, generally speaking, that the factors of environment and society that are risk factors in, in a financial equation are not being looked at. So those blind spots cause what Nassim Taleb called a, blind, a black swan, an unexpected event, because we didn't take into a, account, we didn't start tracking on the data of those phenomenon. So when it happens, it's surprising because we're not watching that because it's not part of our formula to track on our portfolio. So putting those 
data points and those perspectives into the portfolio management actually reduce risk and potentially can enhance return. But the risk management factor is actually crucial. And this is what many different institutions, uh, insurance companies and others are doing to do that big data, complexity theory, systems view modeling and using AI for that, but putting that into a formula for the earth for what to do with our $100 trillion of pensions to ensure that future generations can benefit from the money that we have and the wealth that we create from that money is making sure that we're investing. And the analogy I will often use is that we're in a house, we have a bank account, the house is old and it's getting rickety and the pipes are rusting and we need to repair things, but we're using our bank account to buy a new wallpaper and furniture and carpet instead of fixing the foundation and the pipes and the beams. So that's what we need to do on earth is ensure that we recognize the value that was presumed of being free, but recognize that we're disrupting that life support system on planet earth. And then looking at Buckminster Fuller's model of operating manual for spaceship earth, putting that as a pragmatic science and then using finance to invest in the very operations of planet earth to make sure that our biosphere is is full of integrity so that we can actually support future generations being in the manner that the sustainable development goals are really talking about. But weave all that into a better financial equation is essentially our work. Yeah. And we're, te we're test driving that model here in California and the community of practice globally of yeah. people looking at similar regional and bioregional models. From the standpoint of a macro economist that's looking at keeping generations of future budgets uh, alive, California just went from a $21 billion surplus to a $50 billion deficit because of the COVID crisis. And now we need to pragmatically decide how we manage the state's affairs. And I was in conversation with the treasurer's office yesterday on their challenges around this. So for some people, that's too abstract. But when we bring that back to our own balance sheet and our own budget and our own personal decision making for our business or our own family budget, it's just taking that same kind of perspective of what's really the best. And sometimes I'm advocating for clients who say, I'm not sure if I should spend all my money going back to school because I'm not sure if I'll make money in that degree or should I spend my savings? And I'm like, well, if your purpose is to generate wealth from who you are and you're more purpose aligned by spending all your savings on that then you will have no money at the end of that, but you'll have a more robust capacity to be resilient, to make a lot more wealth. So it's a, one of the best investments you can make, which is ironic from a standpoint, but you have to look at context at that point and what the purpose of your life and using the money for that on a personal level, but it's the same perspective I just outlined from the standpoint of the global perspective. I what, see. Is, what is important, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for underlining the, the thinking framework behind it. So let me recreate what you just said. Be really clear about what you stand for, your purpose, and then you can choose the mechanism that's going to help you optimizing for that. In Greg's case, he's advising large systematic thinkers, let's say the policymakers of California, right? Then you got to think about it for multi-generations. He is maybe advising a, a, a family of wealth and then they, they have a particular timeline that they're optimizing for versus when he's advising for individual clients and they have a particular timeline that they're optimizing for. Is that an accurate recreation of what you just said? 
Absolutely. And I want to share part of my story where I had some of those turning point epiphanies. As a financial advisor that predominantly would do business with anyone that would talk to me in the 90s, to saying, I want to focus on purpose-driven investors that want their money where their values are in 2002, I had to really give up a lot of my clients and more or less start over and get clear about my purpose. But if I was aligned with my purpose, I would be willing to work 12 hour days to then cultivate a client base. But then my purpose became clear that it was not just helping individual clients because what I learned in the mid 2000s is that if we're like the, the sovereign wealth fund of Norway with a trillion dollars or CalPERS estate pension system with 700 billion, the decision-making process of what to do with this pile of money in face of unknown market dynamics across the planet and the capital markets, it's generally the same set of questions that I need to address as a financial planner for an individual. And the more I studied both sides of that and became sophisticated in both, I realized that the questions are more or less the same. It's just a matter of scale and what's investable. And then that became my passion to become a student of that kind of macroeconomic perspective and then looking at things on a level of state of California. And most of that work has been volunteer, advising the California Center and the Milken Institute or the work I'm doing with Cal Forward. But now that it's coming together and there is a greater need, there's many people that want to work on this level systemically. And that's the direction of our consulting group where we're working with a number of projects in the direction that you heard. But it all relates. It's all the same process. So sometimes what I might think of if I were a violinist, just practicing another Beethoven thing for the 10th time or 15th or 500th time, I may not see how what I'm doing makes sense to where I want to go. Or if I'm a sous chef, just making the salsa in the back of the kitchen, not knowing that someday I'll be running a restaurant empire. But just knowing that's where this instinct piece that we came started with of knowing, am I should, should I be doing salsa or not? Should I be practicing? No, this is not my calling. I need to get out of here. But that's only something that's intuitive. And there won't be enough information logically to make a decision. It's about following your gut and following your purpose and what feels good. So on that note, I want to talk about the visioneering aspect of it a bit. And I don't want to call it goal setting because goal setting has a particular flavor. That's not what I'm talking about. So we're talking about purpose, right? When we're talking about using a GPS analogy, right? Like where this thing is leading and we're trusting that the GPS direction is moving us towards that destination, whatever that is. Are there processes or mental frameworks that you have in really helping you concretize? One of my mentors, this is a book she wrote, I think about, 20 years ago mm. about using uh, journaling and collage to mm. then tap into the parts of your psyche that your mind doesn't necessarily and using art therapy and collage and visioning and all those kinds of things. All those tools are appropriate. And I'm passionately reading self help and personal development books and always refining my edge and every Liking, like, love, I love studying all these different points of view and reading different versions of it. So I'm reading Taoist books, I'm reading Gay Hendricks, I'm reading her books, I'm reading Buckminster Fuller, just because it's always a learning process of cultivating and refining my essence and becoming a better version of myself. As That's really the project here. 
it's really the only project is self-cultivation. And that's the joy because it never ends. You could be laying in a deathbed just going, I'm going to cultivate myself better by the way I twitch my finger. It's just about really getting down to the passion of life and then being attuned that I really think is the essence of purpose. But then using every tool available. And if you need a tool and you really trust your instinct and the universe, the tools will show up and the teachers will appear. You just have to listen and look at the magic of the universe. And that's where Jung was obsessed with synchronicity because synchronicity isn't, isn't a magic phenomenon that happens in a unicorn universe with mermaids and dragons. It's a way that we operate in our psyche as a collective, which is why Jung wrote a book about it as an expression, is a product of the conscious and unconscious processes in, the, in humanity. And we just to tap into that as a magical tool because it's a tool that's part of our makeup. It's part of what it means to be human. And it's not some out there weirdo, woo-woo, hippie process. It's actually how we're wired. It's just that most of us have been taught otherwise. And that's the thing that needs to be unwound, which is why I usually say the movie The Matrix is a documentary. Mm, I love you know? The Matrix. My, my new background is The Matrix Dojo. So yeah, the dojo, right? So this is what we have. And that's why you have, I remember I saw that on your, on your Zoom call on Metal the other day. That was amazing. I actually, I love this conversation, but I actually have a conversation in two minutes with a public official that I need to be on. I need to wrap up, but I would love to do this again. Absolutely. So Greg, let me just take one minute to really acknowledge you for sharing yourself so generously and being willing to weave in and out of these, what may seem very philosophical, very esoteric conversation, but really, and then really also grounded in a practical way. Love to do this again. Thank you so much. I'll be following up with you shortly. I Thank you very everybody. much. Take care. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be among your esteemed guests because I've seen some of your guests and I really admire what they're saying and being including it that in that was very valuable to me. So wow. thank you. You you really brought it. Thank you so much.